U.S. Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away last Friday, and many around the world have been mourning her death. She was considered a trailblazer in many ways, pioneering the way for uh, many women, inspiring many uh, to uh, have a legal career themselves. Um, She had uh, a dying wish, you could say, uh, basically asking that the government to hold off on appointing her successor until after the presidential elections. However, President Trump and his allies have uh, vowed to uh, swiftly uh, find her replacement before the November 3rd election. So we'll talk about all of that, but uh, focus a lot on the legacy of uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Uh, joining us here in the studio from h o n g i k University's College of Law is Professor Cho Yigyang. Professor Cho, thank you very much for joining us. Good morning, Henry. Well, uh, before we begin, uh, we want to hear a clip that uh, you, you uh, did specifically rest, request for us, and I know you will be explaining the backdrop of this, but first, let's take a listen. The majority and the dissenters agree on two points. First, race-based voting discrimination still exists. No one doubts that. Second, the Voting Rights Act addresses an extraordinary problem, a near century of disregard for the dictates of the 15th Amendment, and Congress has taken extraordinary measures to meet the problem. Beyond those two points, the court divides sharply. Could you explain the the background uh, for that? uh, Sure. So this is the case from 2013 called Shelby County and Holder, which basically gutted the Voting Rights Act in the U.S. Um, uh, The majority of the Supreme Court uh, in the U.S. did that. And the voting rights actually dates back, you know, uh, to 1965. And it was really designed to protect uh, the... Uh, especially the black voters, um, uh, by essentially imposing a requirement for those mainly southern states who used to who had a history of dis- discrimination against black voters. Things like requiring them, you know, voters to guess how many uh, jelly beans there are in yeah. a jar, and, or a you know, poll tax, or, or poll tax, uh, and, and 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 things of that nature, and to actually submit any of those kind of conditions. Um, before you can vote, to pre-clearance by the federal government to ensure that the the voters wouldn't be discriminated against. And, um, you know, the southern states basically brought a a case to the the, the Supreme Court arguing that this act was unconstitutional because things have changed since Mm. 1965. Uh, 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 Blacks enjoy um, equal voting rights and there is not so much discrimination. Um, But The act had actually been extended under the the, the Bush uh, presidency in 2006. And despite that, the Supreme Court actually held by majority that, yes, this law was unconstitutional. um, And the Congress had to set new set of conditions uh, for it to work. And she was, uh, you know, really angry about that. Um, But she penned this uh, dissent and sort of uh, going out of her way, she actually... um, made a bench announcement, or, uh, which is, you know, when you write a judgment, usually it's just handed down. You don't necessarily read it out yeah. unless it's the majority judgment. But she went out of her way to, um, you know, sort of read this judgment out, her dissent, uh, along with three other judge- justices. And 
that was the basis of her nickname, Notorious RBG, because mm. uh, one law student who was so angry about the outcome of the voting rights uh, case uh, basically highlighted this and kind of um, you know, put it up on Tumblr and it got made into a rap song, etc., etc. And so yeah. hence the, the, the RBG, uh, so right. Notorious RBG. Named after the, uh, the, the, the iconic rapper. hip-hop uh, Notorious <laughs> B.I.G. Uh, obviously a lot of parodies uh, in regards to her character on Saturday Night Live and uh, I, I think all done in, a, in, a, in an affectionate way and uh, somebody who has kind of garnered that kind of affection from all around. You mentioned the latter part of her career really being known for these scathing, eloquent dissents from a, a lot of other issues besides Shelby right. as well. Exactly. So as the Supreme Court sort of moved from basically being in balance between um, liberal and conservative, you know, because there are nine judges and you had like four of each, um, with one kind of floating voter who would sometimes vote conservative. You're talking about Kennedy. Kennedy, exactly, yeah. and sometimes uh, liberal. Uh, but when he stepped down and they appointed John Roberts, the chief justice, um, the, sh- the court basically shifted to the right. And I think she became much, much more vociferous in her dissent um, and much more strong-worded uh, in uh, sort of... Uh, arguing her objections against why the majority uh, was wrong to decide uh, that there are certain kind of cases that they did, things like voting rights, things like, um, uh, you know, uh, funding for elections, uh, how, you know, super PACs and these kind of corporate corporate monies still being too much uh, channeled into uh, elections, etc., etc. And so um, she inspired, obviously, a whole generation of lawyers, uh, not just women, but she was, as you say, she was a trailblazer, a pioneer in many, many ways. Um, I don't really need to go into all of the, you know, yeah, things that sure. she did, where you know there is a first before before her name. Um, but to sort of, it's a bit difficult for us to imagine in this day and age when uh, f- more than fifty percent of law students are women. Uh, how she, how difficult for her it was to actually study law, right? Mm. Um, she was big asked by the dean of Harvard Law School uh, when she was being interviewed for a place, why are you usurping a, a place for a man? You know, mm. why, <laughs> how can you justify your being here? And she said, she answered something like, you know, since my husband will become a lawyer, it's, I think it's important for me to understand what he does. So essentially sort of, you know, um, claiming her supporting role rather than um, uh, that she can take the main uh, part. And the fact that you know, little girls couldn't even dream about uh, becoming a lawyer in that era, let alone be- becoming a Supreme Court judge. So she, she was indeed um, a, a, a sort of, you know, lodestar for a lot of uh, women. But I do also want to kind of draw contrast because she, was, she wasn't the first female appointee no. to the Supreme Court. I was going to ask you that because... Um I mean, we are kind of living in a current era where the immediacy of an event here kind of maybe has more resonance. But why does it seem like she is considered to be so much more of a looming, iconic figure than mm. a Sandra Day O'Connor, who was mm. widely well-respected, considered a conservative judge, but I believe I believe uh, turned to be a bit more moderated in her uh, views and, and her uh, decisions as well. But it does seem like um, Ginsburg legacy kind of overshadows her. And that, that just could be a subjective 
perspective. No, and I think you're right because I was also thinking about this very point. Why is there so much outpouring? I mean, this level of tribute, which perhaps if she had stepped down during the Obama administration, um, may not have reached this Mm. point. Just uh, like how O'Connor stepped down during the George W. Bush administration. Right, right. Um, And so, in fact, that's a sore point because a lot of people were hoping and even sort of trying to persuade her to step down during uh, the Obama administration so that he could make a pick for the Supreme Court. A younger A younger uh, liberal judge, right? Um, But she didn't. And I think she thought that she could hang on until Clinton was elected and, you know, they will be able to pick a liberal judge anyway. But... um, it's as if people are people feel they are under siege, and when this like uh, iconic figure who was like a protector for the underdog, you know, who was uh, the defender of the the oppressed, <laughs> is now uh, gone, they feel somehow really bereft. And also, I think you mentioned the word fear um, earlier. Yeah. And in a way, I think they are afraid that uh, Trump will nominate a real hardline conservative um, to the bench. And as you know, Supreme Court appointments in the U.S. are are for life. Uh, And so that, you know, this kind of right would uh, bend uh, for the court will actually last for a generation, you know, maybe for the next 30 years. Um, And so I think that's a real fear. And there are so many really big issues that are upcoming, things like, you know, uh, a right to abortion, uh, things like gender equality, things like, you know, discrimination, voting rights, so many uh, really big cases that are actually looming on the Supreme Court schedule. And so um, this could actually have much more impact than anything that Trump might have done as administrative or executive act during his presidency. It's uh, it has almost become a meme now uh, over the past four years, where uh, any time uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg went in for some kind of treatment for her ongoing battle with with cancer, and right. everybody panicking and saying, yeah. "Come on, you just gotta yeah. kind of just survive, kind of." Mm-hmm soldier through until at least we get to the November 3rd. Yeah, (laughs) until we have a change in administration where uh, we can uh, finally. And as you say, that point lingers from the Obama era where uh, perhaps uh, Obama did appoint uh, two justices, uh, two women, uh, Sotomayor and uh, Elena Kagan. Mm -hmm. Uh, So uh, there is female representation. Donald Trump has vowed that he will uh, likely appoint a female, uh, probably a much more conservative jurist uh, to take over. I know you don't want to weigh in too much on the political aspects of this, but what do you make of these accusations that uh, the Republicans are being hypocritical for holding up the Merrick Garland uh, appointment from Obama saying that, you know, with 250 days to go to the election, we got to let the people decide. And then now with uh, less than two months remaining, saying that we got to push this in through and uh, we got to make sure that uh, Trump has the judge that he wants. Not just allegation, but they're being completely (laughs) hypocritical. I mean, you know, uh, it, it's just so two-faced, right? Um, but if you are going to, if you are a realist, then you might just say, "Well, that's what politics uh, is." Um, but as you pointed out, exactly, uh, Obama um, to replace Antonin Scalia, who had, I think, passed away earlier in the year. He had he'd rem- nominated Merrick Garland, who is was a moderate, to- right? Com- moderate. I mean, he was such a lawyer's lawyer and respected by both sides of the aisle, um, had such a sterling record, both as a lawyer and a jurist, uh, couldn't you know, fault him. Um, he probably would have got the nomination had uh, the Senate hearing 
uh, gone through. But uh, Mitch McConnell didn't even give him the courtesy of uh, having a hearing, right? I mean, it was just such a, um, you know, travesty, I thought. And McConnell was like, sort of trying to justify it at the time by saying, oh, you know, um, Biden kind of floated this strategy. Yeah, the Biden rule is what he cited. Right, which wasn't true because he never actually, he talked about it. He never actually put it into practice. And and now, four years later, you know, as you say, um, not even 200 something, not in the same year, but, you know, we are, are, what, 49 days away from the election. And for him to say, well, we'll uh, push it through as quickly as we can. We'll definitely hold a hearing before the election. It's just outrageous. Um, And as for Trump, um, he's even talking about how Ruth Bader Ginsburg, apparently her, her dying wish or, you know, her, her, the words that she'd conveyed to her granddaughter, a grown adult granddaughter, yeah. was for her, the appointment of her successor to be, uh, you know, um, postponed until after uh, the new president has been sworn in. And and Trump is now sort of claiming, oh, we don't know she actually said that or, you know, it's something that... Um, uh, Schiff, Adam Schiff, uh, made up or something like this. He's yeah. actually going on air. Sounds and saying like the this. Trump thing to say. It's uh, just outrageous. So. Well, the idea, and you, you mentioned uh, the idea that uh, people feeling besieged, and this sort of uh, now being documented with these various court cases that have proven to be controversial and perhaps opposed to uh, what a lot of people feel. Citizens United allowing uh, unlimited amounts of corporate funds to enter the electoral process, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, the the gutting of the Voting Rights Act, even a lot of questions on integrities of um, uh, governance where if it's a 6-3 court, uh, pretty much any allegation that comes against Trump uh, later on uh, will likely die at the hands of kind of appeals processes going all the way up to the highest court in the land. Y- and you so are right. there are huge implications yeah. for uh, if they are successful. With- yes, and, and, and especially because the upcoming election is likely to be contested regardless of the outcome. Uh, I mean, you, you can see that Trump uh, base is really preparing for that. And even if he loses by a significant margin, uh, there's definitely going to be legal challenges. And if the, the appointment and nomination process and appointment actually goes through before the election and you do end up having a 6-3 uh, court, even with, you know, uh, sort of John Roberts trying to hold it even keel, you know, I am concerned what would happen uh, if the, the result of the election actually does end up uh, before the Supreme Court, like it did in, in Bush and Gore case. It's often been said, at least in the U.S. political context, that conservatives are just much more competent and uh, passionate and effective in the uh, entire political process and the machinations of appointing conservative judges. And we've seen this to great success with Mitch McConnell, as you said, with the federal judges um, in the appeals courts, uh, kind of putting in these uh, uh, dubious but uh, um, very conservative uh, judges uh, on lifetime appointments. Now, with with the uh, Supreme Court situation, and if we have this shift, and I know there's still a lot of pain and lingering from um, maybe not so much the Neil Gorsuch appointment, but the uh, Brett Kavanaugh, mm-hmm. uh, which if, if I mean, uh, it feels like a lifetime ago, but that was just a very traumatic process for everyone involved, including the sexual uh, assault allegations. Uh, to have this replayed again, uh, there is, you know, there is talk about if the Democrats take over Senate, presidency, 
what we can do is we can add two more states, have four more senators. We can um, what they call pack the court, but basically right. increase the size of the justices from, let's say, 11 to 13 mm-hmm. and have the president, uh, if it's hopefully Biden, uh, appoint those jurors. Are these all kind of out-of-bounds speculation, or are these things that should be on the table in terms of dealing with this onslaught from the conservative you side? You know, I, I think that there is somewhat drastic. Um, but uh, Supreme Court justice numbers had been, uh, you know, b- different before. You know, we, we did have up to, what, 10 at one, one point? Um, right. And then and FDR had tried to do a similar thing in packing the court because he was dealing with, I guess, an adversarial Supreme Court with him trying to push those progressive reforms. Th- that, that's right. E- exactly. Um, um, but the real sort of problem here is the fact that they have lifetime appointment. And it's not even because it's actually expressly stated in the constitution anywhere. It simply says that you will hold the office during good behavior. But I don't think the you know, the original draft of the con- drafters of the constitution, the founding fathers, as it were, uh, ever intended for them to actually have lifetime appointment. Mm. I, I think they simply didn't really sort of think about it and didn't say, well, they retire at such and such retirement age. Um, and obviously, the uh, the longevity uh, back in those days isn't, you know, what it is now. People didn't used to live that long. Um, and when you have like judges in their 80s, late 80s, even going on to 90s, still sitting uh, on the bench deciding these kind of really monumental cases that's going to affect uh, the fate of a nation, I just think it's just not quite right. Um And the fact that, you know, the average Supreme Court uh, tenure is more than 20 years is just simply too long. Um, And so, you know, it would require uh, a a real sort of uh, huge legislative effort, but they really need to look at, I think, limiting the Supreme Court uh, term. But obviously for Democrats, um, they have nothing to lose. So they are going to look at every, you know, the entire range of spectrum uh, of what they can do to uh, essentially make sure, prevent this this outcome. Um, And I think there is a real strong sentiment among the people. uh, They don't feel that Trump should be pushing through or McConnell should be pushing through Trump's appointment anyway, um, nomination. Uh, And so um, even Trump perhaps wouldn't dare to go against 60%. I mean, that was the poll result, mm. right, um, of, of people's opinions. Yeah, I mean, uh, recent polling, 70% still support the Roe versus Wade position, 80% uh, you know, support uh, uh, things like uh, gay, gay marriage. And so uh, these are kind of decisions that could go the other way despite a very popular opinion. Got 30 seconds left. Bottom line for you uh, with Ruth, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, does she in the pantheon of uh, Supreme Court justices loom large as big a figure as, let's say, Thurgood Marshall? <laughs> you know, um, I would actually say uh, when everything settles down, we might have a bit more clear picture of where she sits. But she certainly did a real sort of uh, huge contribution uh, for gender equality. But I also do want to mention that she wasn't, she wouldn't have been able to achieve this without the support of her uh, partner, uh, Martin Ginsburg, who was incredibly supportive of her her career all throughout their marriage. And so I just want to say, well, she's certainly an icon and somebody to look up to, especially for working women, but you also need 
your uh, spouse's support, your family support, uh, all the networks surrounding you. And so we shouldn't really forget that. Yeah, uh, it's a good lesson for uh, modern couples out there, uh, especially with uh, successful uh, women out in the workforce and making a name for themselves to to have that uh, supportive uh, spouse uh, through thick and thin. Uh, We want to thank you for all of this uh, in terms of your uh, legal expertise in uh, gauging the legacy of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and obviously the uh, political ramifications of all this as well. Professor Joe, thank you very much. We'll talk to you again next week. Thank you.